Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Ian. I'm Katie. And I'm Emily. We are three friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. Parties. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. Um, I mean, I felt like I was just glued to the news today um, about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and just the absolute flagrance of Putin and his decisions and what this is going to mean for the rest of the world. And it is a scary, another like scary day. And I feel like we've had a lot of those over the last just couple of years. Yeah. And he's the leader of one of the countries with the largest land masses in the world and it's not enough right no it's never going to be enough i keep thinking of i don't know why this came to my head but uh, a harry potter quote that voldemort says is just like there is only power and those too weak to seek it i just felt sick all day i was like i don't know what to do or what to think or we're just holding space for ukraine right now in our hearts for sure so I'm doing our best to move forward. I was just like, no war, guys. Just like, no war. Why is this a thing? (laughs) We're just not. (sighs) I remember being in a particular class in uh, as a grad assistant. And one of the other grad assistants, it was his turn to um, do a mini lecture. And he was showing video actually from the from the Battle of Stalingrad, uh, which is one of the I mean, just most horrible (sighs) It was basically a siege during World War II in Russia. And in on this video, it was just like we were just watching people get shot. And I was just like, these are real people. I just watched a guy who is never going home to his mother. Like, it just really impacted me. But there are deep, deep emotional memories that Russia mm-hmm. is tapping into mm-hmm. to recontextualize what they are actually doing, which is they are now... They are now the Third Reich. They they've been they've been playing in that playground for a long time, but this is just such a map so beautifully onto the Lebensraum, you know, justification that G- the Germany used. And it's so people use use the Nazi example so often that it just is absurd. Uh, right. But this one fits beautifully. Yeah. yeah. These are just our people. These have just always been our people. They of speak course, Russian. Of course they want to be with us. And it's like, 67% of them don't want to. So I guess what are you going to do about that? Yeah. But anyway, acknowledging what's happening in Ukraine, we wanted to um, do a Black History Month podcast episode. And so that is what we are going to dive into to today. We have a few things just to share with you, some recommendations honor the fact that February is Black History Month, even though it's the shortest month of the year, which everyone points out and I always find ironic. But yeah, do you have anything or what do you have to recommend or to talk about today? Well, I know I had originally said I was going to do something else, but I'm going to read actually very briefly from a foundational history text in the study of African American history, um, which is called Slave Religion. And it's by a man named... um, 
Albert Rabateau, and he was at, I think, well, he's at one of the big Ivies, Ivy schools in the 60s. And when he said he wanted to study African American religion um, under slavery, people told him, like, there's nothing there. There's nothing there to find, essentially. Wow. And he was kind of like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like it could be true, but maybe they're right. And, you know, as a PhD student, when your committee is like, don't don't go digging in that sandbox there's you're going to come up empty you kind of like you need to write your dissertation right but he went and what he found was there was tons of stuff it's just that nobody had been interested right and i have actually heard i got scooped on this i had heard this um paragraph from slave religion in a sermon at my church um, after I had read it, I was like, wait a minute, what? And I always, I always have my students read it. It's like the one kind of covert <laughs> thing that I do, but it's so outstanding. And it is in this just foundational piece of American religious history and of African-American history. It was groundbreaking. So, I mean, there's not, there's really no background to give. It's about the, the religion of enslaved people. And so I'm going to read this for you right now. Despite severe persecution and suffering, Slave Christians bore witness to the Christian gospel, whose truth they perceived and maintained in contradiction to the debasement of that very gospel by those who held power over their bodies and their external actions, but not their souls. The suffering witness of slave Christians constitutes a major spiritual legacy, not only for their descendants, but also for any who would take the time to heed the testimony of their words and of their lives. And I mean, that is in a professional mm. history by a well-regarded historian at a major secular university. Yeah. And it has been so, as I've been going through a lot of changes in the last five, six, eight years mm. on these issues, I keep coming back to when, when I hear fellow white Christians, especially during the pandemic, but not exclusively mm. talk using this language of liberty and how, you know, like the mask mandate is a slippery slope in yeah. which the government is going to take our power. And I've yeah. only like said this to a few people, but it's like, no, 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 the government already has done that and already does do that. It just hasn't been to you. It's been mm. to your neighbors <laughs> who live in a different body than you. We used to do it under slavery, then we did it under Jim Crow, and now we do it through mass incarceration. And this idea that the rapture is going to happen or, you know, the tribulation, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and it's yep. like, well, you think that's going to happen now because you're required to get a shot to eat at your favorite Italian restaurant? Mm -hmm. Like, if, if that's how this eschatology worked, the persecution of Christians was going to be the sign. Why on earth wasn't it? when it was legal to rape people that you held in bondage, steal their children and kill them. And then, and because I study religion and bodies and like, I'm taught, I'm thinking right now a lot about that. What you do to the body during um, the human body impacts your afterlife. Sometimes uh, enslavers and jud um, judicial powers would dismember, sorry, trigger warning, dismember the body of people that they executed as an extra warning. Because if you were Christian, you might fear that 
um, incorrectly that you couldn't go to heaven because your body wasn't intact. You couldn't be resurrected on resurrection day. And um, sort of animist tradition, African beliefs were that you couldn't basically return to Africa because your body was not intact yeah. and had to be buried in the appropriate way. So this terrorism against people, not only in this world, but the ability to exert power over you in the life to come. If that wasn't going to trigger Christ Coming. breaking into the world, I can tell you, yeah. having to carry around a a card saying you've had your shots, it ain't going to be it. <laughs> I run into that in several places um, in the spheres that I am in. And it is incredible um, that like the audacious comparisons that people make. I mean, we were talking about Nazi Germany being like over overused as an example. So that's definitely oh, yeah. one that happens. Um, but oh, yeah. um, so glad that you read from that because it is so the, the legacy, I think the legacy of resilience is something that we talk a lot about and just the incredible power to create beauty and art and carry generational trauma. Such a testimony to the human heart. And, but then also speaking of that religious perspective of like the, just the soul, the soul that endures and a God who is faithful. Yeah. If human beings are still here in 500 or a thousand years, the legacy of enslaved African diaspora Christians is going to be a major, major part of that legacy. They are going to be our book of martyrs mm -hmm. that we look back on. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be Mark Driscoll. It's not going to be Robbie Zacharias. They're going to be gone out of the record. The people, Sojourner Truth is going to be one of the great saints of the church. Harriet Tubman is going to be one of the great mm -hmm. saints of the church. Frederick mm -hmm. Douglass, I mean, already is. But these, these lives and this testimony uh, against the false gospel, the anti-story that I hear Marty Ooh. Solomon talking about, um, working against the gospel. It's very humbling to for myself to be a part of a people, <laughs> a people group who has always told the story in one particular way. And I believe it was a Frederick Douglass quote talking about how there are two versions of Christianity in America today. And it is utterly chilling the kinds of things that are justified um, underneath white Christianity. And that was, I mean, that was back in the 19th century. There's a religion of the oppressor um, that uses Christian language to continue a uh, cycle of violence and we have to look it in the face because it's not going to stop unless we do. Yeah. To, to lighten the mood just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I was in a huge lecture call two, three years ago because I was the TA for the American history to 1865 class. And so enormous projection screen, huge lecture hall. And actually there are a lot of photographs that exist of Frederick Douglass. You kind of see the same one over and over again. There are tons of them. And my professor put up a picture of him and it was so huge on that wall. He must have been a super intense dude because his face looking down on me, I was just like, <gasps> I think his eyes are following me. <laughs> that's exactly what he wants <laughs> he's like yes yep. married twice first and he was the son i believe of an enslaved african woman and a uh, white enslaver and his first wife was african-american and his second wife was white and he basically like he he said i got criticism for both my marriages <laughs> if my first wife looked like my mother my second wife looked like my father and then that showed people up <laughs> 
<laughs> well, um, I kind of like that you started kind of maybe we can make a timeline out of this just a little bit because um, the recommendation that I wanted to make is of an Amazon or documentary that's available on Amazon. I don't know if it's an Amazon original, but it is kind of intense. It's The Rape of Reese Taylor, and it is Ooh. a story of Jim Crow South. And sometimes I think, um, especially white people are kind of like, well, you just couldn't vote. Meow. I don't know. Um, but the utter terrorism that African-Americans lived under in quote unquote freedom, right, <laughs> was absolutely incredible. So the rape of Reese Taylor follows a story of a woman who was gang raped. And then she goes home and there's this moment where her father can't, can't go to the police. We can't go to the judge. There's no redress for this wrong. The neighbors are up in, I mean, everyone's up in arms and kind of the the irony of in that time period, if a black man looked sideways at a white woman, um, he could be lynched, and many were. Um, yeah. The fact that um, young white men could drive up in a car and take her, rape her, drop her off at her house, and everyone knew who they were, and everyone yeah. know, knew whose sons they were, and there was absolutely nothing this family could do. Well, yeah. this, and, and legally, depending on what year it yeah. was, nothing illegal happened. Right. And this is something I still am like trying to sort of figure out. It There was no legal category of rape that applied to Black women mm. until basically our parents' lifetimes. Wow. And I'm not sure what the exact, it's, it's kind of like until uh, 1979 or 1983 in the United States, there were still, there were still states where there was no legal category of rape against your wife. They yeah. specifically said forcible carnal knowledge of a woman, not your wife. Mm. And so uh, this was something I learned in a grad class that, and not only, I mean, it, what he did was a sin, but it wasn't illegal. So mm. recently I didn't end up including this in the brief correspondence I had with a Christian author who wrote a book that was very bad and very damaging, but he, in order to talk about how abortion is bad, he used the logic. And I had to ask a couple people because I didn't grow up with this particular language or logic. He was talking about how bodily autonomy is not a biblical principle Ooh. or category. But to talk, yeah, lots of problems there. But the example he used was of Black women who were lobbying for access to reproductive care, including pregnancy termination. And my jaw just hit the floor that he would have the audacity and or ignorance it was probably both to mm. use as his example of this Christian theological argument against bodily autonomy, black women, a double yeah. category of human being whom the law has said, you don't get to decide what happens to your body. Mm. This other category of embodied experience gets to decide what happens to your body. And there wow. is no redress for you. And that is one thing that I wish I would have said to him, mm. but it's, it's difficult. Anne and I are both white. My, in to understanding racial injustice has been gender-based violence and injustice systems mm. of gender oppression because it's like they kind of map onto each other and you're like oh so my black friend said x let me just flip those to male and female oh i get this in a deep visceral way but i was writing to a white man he has no experience yeah of actual oppression, <laughs> you know, it's very difficult to help someone understand, even if they're open, because that gateway that I have kind of built in doesn't exist to understand other people's 
trauma and being written out of the justice system. Mm-hmm. So that is one that I wish that I had said, you can't do this, man. <laughs> yeah. Again, it, it, and it, it is so, and it is that audacity and ignorance of like, you don't even know of the violence of which you speak. And then you just use it as this example because it doesn't mean anything to you. You haven't, I don't, it, it's not real to you in any, in any particular way. And the rape of Reese Taylor is, is such a visceral experience when you watch it and um, people remembering and recalling and, and their push for justice. I mean, ultimately they do like have a court case and they like move forward and it's just, it's blocked on every side, but the, again, determination and endurance and resilience to tell this story even, right? That we would even know that this happened, even if like actual kind of punitive justice isn't necessarily accessible. This story is told. Uh, I was remembering watching Hidden Figures, um, a huge packed audience in Cincinnati that was full of black and white people, you know, watching this film. And it was funny to pay attention to when the crowd would laugh, when like the black crowd would laugh at certain things. And then when I found myself laughing with them and it was always on the gendered experience of the women um who were saying like oh so just because oh you think i work at nasa and i'm a secretary and i'm not a scientist or i'm not like a mathematician like that's your assumption i serve coffee or whatever and so it was fun to experience those moments of solidarity of recognition of where our stories overlap and also to acknowledge that there is plenty of that story that I will never experience and have never experienced and to kind of sit with them. But it was, it was fun to be like, Oh, I got that joke too. Like I'm, I'm kind of doing that like chuckle too. Like, ugh, stupid men, uh, you know, kind of thing. Were you and I at that movie together? I went to see hidden figures a few different times and oh, okay. I, I did with you. Um, I don't know if it was, I remember that experience. I think I just remember it cause it was the first time I was seeing it. Um, yeah. So I don't know if you remember people laughing at, you know, similar parts or different parts or I had a funny, I don't know if this is, this connects at all. Maybe not, but I had a funny experience um, helping one of our friends, uh, Satya, she's been on the podcast by a car and oh, yeah. between us, <laughs> the car salesman. So Satya's just uh, was Sri Lankan, so brown man, white woman. And, and this car salesman was just looking back and forth between us. Like, who do I, who, who do I, talk to in this like I can't talk to a woman because she doesn't know anything about cars and then (laughs) brown man and then he goes back to me for my whiteness and then he goes back to Satish for his maleness and then he I mean it was just fascinating to see how these how intersectionality plays out in who has the power who has the authority and to watch someone absolutely flounder um, (laughs) like figure out together created one whole person (laughs) It was just like, where is the money coming from? Like he was just, I was like, Satish, he's like, oh, and it was so uncomfortable and funny. There ended up being something wrong with the car that I was telling him and he didn't believe me at all. And I was like, go drive it. And then talk to me. And he was like, oh yeah, the steering sucks. And I'm like, yeah, it does. Um, I know something about how to drive a car, but he like wouldn't believe me. I was just like, oh my God, you suck. But anyway, yeah, intersectionality I think is such an important part of how we can sit in solidarity with people and not not necessarily say my story matches your story, but there's a part of the story that I recognize and how to talk to someone who doesn't have any of their story in a Venn diagram that matches at it all. It's like, it's hard to have that conversation. 
it's really hard. And that's, and the system was set up to be that way. Mm. In fact, I think one way we respond to both stories of um, Jim Crow and slavery, there's frequently an, a response of discomfort. And so someone will say, but there were good fill in the blank. There were people who wanted to help and were trying to help. But the system of Jim Crow was built so that white people couldn't make it better. Like, so in the story of the rape that you're talking about, it it wasn't a matter of like one police officer doing his job. No, nope. right. nope. system is set up so that you can't do that. And so that you get punished for doing it. Yeah. And in fact, I've told my students before about a reason potentially that very few people broke the rules of Jim Crow was also because that would bring down punishment on the person they were trying to help. So you you don't drive to the wrong side of town to like drop your maid off or deliver groceries because you're in fact going to bring down more pressure on her and her family by you breaking the rules. Mm -hmm. So the insidiousness of the system is mm -hmm. to keep rule breakers on either side, although it's way worse if you're black, it's still made to keep keep you from breaking the rules if you're white. And so even people who might be outstandingly ethical and want to break free of the system, you're still going to cause hardship for other people. And that will keep you in line as yeah. well. Right, right. And it's a it's a drop in the ocean. I mean, yep. and, and that's why when we, when even in the last 10 years, uh, when we start talking about systemic issues, we're trying to name this entire structure. We're trying to look at a thing that has operated in the shadows in the background for a long time. One of the things that someone was talking about access to healthcare and all of the, and so many barriers that people experience in accessing healthcare. And when we were caring for my mother, someone was telling me about their story. I was sitting outside of the Cleveland clinic and they were just telling me like they couldn't get here and the doctor wasn't listening. And then this was happening and, and all of the things that they were experiencing. And my yeah. like, I felt like I was crawling out of my skin to because I was in a situation where we were so vulnerable and so at the mercy of a system that accepted us, that if I was encountering the same kinds of systemic oppression and situations that was rejecting this person, I couldn't care for my mother. I could, yep. she couldn't get the help that she needs. And that kind of, I mean, that just makes you want to scramble and scream when all of a sudden you're faced with a kind of flat, dispassionate wall of a rule and there's no way around it and there's no way through it. You're no longer talking to a human or a group of humans. It's just, you are completely cut off. And that kind of helplessness and hopelessness is what a lot of people experience. Huge things are at stake when you are shut out of a system and you, there's nothing you can do. You can't change the system. You know, it's this huge yeah. Titanic that you have to turn around. And thankfully so many people are sharing their stories and identifying and talking about our justice system, identifying and talking about our yeah. health, identifying and talking about how Christianity plays a really big part in creating the system and sustaining the system that we're maybe hopefully dismantling it, but it's so important to name and identify. Ooh. Especially and there when has to be political will to do it. Yeah. Because no matter how good your laws are and how good your constitution is, if you don't have the political will to carry it out, it means nothing. And so why are people making such a big deal about these things that are happening? And why is there such a call for allies? Because the American experiment and 
American promise is only carried out by the people, hmm. truthfully. And we have to actively pursue it. I, I read something recently. It was actually in a book about built environments and disability. Hmm. And Sarah Hendren said, you know, disability, or excuse me, democracy is not a noun, it's a verb. It is something that we do together. And so even if this is not your experience, I mean, I've not been hauled out of a police car and pinned to the ground, you know, or had a no-knock warrant come to my house. But I finally have been convinced that other people are experiencing that. And I have to say, for all the crap we give phones, it was the cell phone camera that finally made me go, oh, wait a minute. I've been, I've not been believing people. And here it is in front of my eyes. Yeah. It, I mean, I don't remember who said like until white people are willing to face bullets for what's yeah. right, this is never going to change. And I cried the day I read that because I went, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I am mm-hmm. willing to do that. And that's a heavy realization. And you got to live with that and probe mm-hmm. that every day. Mm-hmm. Why do I think I shouldn't have to deal with those things? Um, and it's like, there are ways in which populations in America can choose, right? And they often choose the better situation for their pe- their their yeah. family, their, you know, children. Why do I get to tap out? And that's the gospel, isn't it, Anne? God says, I have to come be where you are. Mm. And I have to lose people and I have to lose myself. And that's the only way that this love can be mutual and saving. And true. And true. Because otherwise you're just sitting up in heaven on your nice big throne and you don't know what pain is or suffering is. And yeah, in the recent years, I love Good Friday because it is it is a story in my life, in my very privileged life, where I've been very protected from violence. It is a story about violence enacted on someone that I love and who loves me unjustly. Yeah. And it's a violence of someone willingly walking into that knowing that they could stop it and knowing that it didn't have to be this way, but knowing that so many other people have died this way and died unjustly persecuted by the state. So Mm -hmm. I I love the story of Good Friday and I love sitting in Good Friday and Holy Saturday in the burial, in the not yet. And Easter these days is harder for me to access, but it's still a good story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) still a good story to uh, remember and to hear um, and to reflect on, but Good Friday and Holy Saturday are really powerful. I'm grateful that that narrative is in Christianity. You know, like I'm grateful that that's also part of our tradition. Um, I think it was John Betts, who's also been on the podcast, who was like, yeah, uh, Jesus was a person of color who was persecuted by the state and executed. Yeah. Sold down the river by the people in religious authority. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just, oh, Anne, did you hear what I just did? I just used an idiom that refers to slavery. Being sold down the river. I thought you did it on purpose. I did not. Ooh. There was an adult in my life who I will not name because I don't think this person realized it either. Who used to, if I was being naughty, say to me, get your cotton picking hands off of blah, blah, blah. And I was in high school. I was like a high school junior or senior. And someone was kind of teasingly like trying to take my cookie off my tray. And I said, get your. And all of a sudden I went. Oh my gosh, I've never, never interrogated what this weird phrase meant. Holy smokes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a racial, that's a racial reference. <laughs> it's your hands, your regular, your human person hands. Get them off of my cookie. Oh ah! my gosh. 
Yeah. It's so baked in. And we don't, if we, if there's no reason for you to know what it means, you don't know what it means. Yeah. Along those lines, I've been watching, um, I watch a lot of HGTV uh, and home stuff. I don't know why. It's pretty. Well, of course you do, because you're a middle-class white woman. That's Yeah, that's all I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, no, they have, I have been so excited to hear this change of language when they talk about a master suite. It is now oh. a primary suite. <gasps> consistently almost across every show they have made this change and i was like ah, i i am loving what you are doing yep because i've never thought about that before right but that's, never where that comes, that's where that comes from the master suite is that incredible it is incredible. It's everywhere it's everywhere we have not moved past those people <laughs> yep. it is everywhere Speaking kind of chronologically, a book that I read with a bunch of women from my church, which was really wonderful, it's called The Warmth of Other Sons, and basically yes. documents this huge migration event of African Americans from Jim Crow South. Um, it is by Isabella Wilkerson, and it follows three to four, maybe four different stories of people going to LA, to Chicago, to New York, um, and it is... Uh, my jaw was on the floor 90% of the time I was reading that book because I was never taught that history mm -hmm. at all. And we, to see how places like LA walks and these neighborhoods grew, to see how Chicago grew was just incredible. And the terror, the sheer terrorism that they endured. Um, so it kind of begins in Jim Crow South in several different places. Um, and then basically the really difficult decision to leave, but ultimately to leave, to live, right? And so follows their journey of, of how to make a new life. And it's not really a happy ending at all, but it yeah. was just so eye-opening. And, and it has me question, like, I mean, I learned about the Revolutionary War like every other year my entire education. Like, why couldn't we spend some yeah. time on, on this a huge event, absolutely huge in terms of just like people moving across the nation, but infrastructure that had to be built and all these things that, that changed the dynamics of our cities and just, just incredible gap in my, in my, in my uh, uh, education. And so I thought maybe I'd throw that out there if you wanted to read. It is a very big book, but it's a good yeah. audio book. So if you want to kind of chip away at the audio book, um, that was a way that um, some of the members of our uh, group listened to it on, on like a really long car ride. Um, and they said it was really a wonderful way to learn. And she is a professional historian. She has won the Pulitzer. And this mm -hmm. book won the National Book Critics Circle Award. Yeah. So it has been reviewed by many, many people who know what they're talking about. And this is, yeah. Excellent, excellent work. Yeah, just um, be critical of what ideology people are promoting to you. I, that's true for everyone, but if, you know, if, if someone is promoting an ideology that goes against the testimony of the people who are impacted by some information, that needs extra um, investigation. And we can't be casual about this. And Christians can't be casual about this. When people tell us that they are in danger, our first response ought to be, I am open to hearing this instead of, no. no, you're not. Yeah. I think also a practice, one of the things that um, popped up on, I think, on social media a few years ago that really had me 
changing how I was talking about Black History Month because so much is it, it is about remembering and remembering violence and learning the story, right? And, and I think that's important because a lot of the violence has gone overlooked. Yeah. Uh, but there was a really beautiful picture and it was like celebrate black joy this black history month like remember that there is this other important piece of lived experience and that we want this also when we talk about black history month um and so the recommendation or the i just want to geek out about this i love oil painting um and so i follow someone called black bean um cms i think is what's after their youtube channel name they have done portraits for yeah a portrait of bretman rock i had it mixed up and it's just like, it who's that he is a, a beauty youtuber Bretman. Oh, I was like, oh man, is this some major, you know, uh, politician? <laughs> no. And uh, just really wonderful. Uses all these different colors. Uh, and it is a YouTuber that I actually, I so love just their voice and perspective. And it's funny and it's funky. Um, and I just have so much fun. And I think one of their taglines is like, how many colors can I use on a canvas? You know, like how many things? And it's beautiful. It's beautiful art. Follow Black Bean on YouTube and social media on Instagram too. And that is such a great recommendation. So let me add, I follow a pin board on Pinterest. Ooh. Is anybody under 40 on Pinterest? Um, called Vintage Black Glamour. Ah. And it is like, I mean, 60s bouffants. It is like a Victorian family, like middle class and upper class Victorian families yeah. with all their little girls in a row in their Easter clothing. Like, you're right. There's this other, there's this other part. And if all we talk about is violence, we're like re-traumatizing people. Yeah. And it will rewrite in your mind. Seeing these images is important. If all you've ever gotten is a sad story. Mm -hmm. This is. This is good stuff. We need these images too. Yeah. Happy Black History Month, everybody. I know it's almost over, but support black business. Yeah. Especially if you're kind of libertarian and you don't want you don't want the government like being too involved in this. This is a great way for you as an independent consumer and, and economic unit to exercise justice is just by making a choice to go to a black business. And supporting like content creators, um, mm -hmm. you know, on like TikTok and YouTube by like liking and subscribing, like <clears throat> that is huge. Like that's a huge way that we can support and, uh, you know, like help people have a greater influence. Lots of good things. <laughs> and it's for you. They're, the the part of the lie of racism is that stuff's not for me. That's for someone else. It's for you. Get in there.